Welcome to Legacy Sport Live, stories of the people who are shaping the conversation at the intersection of sport, business and purpose. I'm Neil Duffy, co-author of our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Today I talk to Dean Carmen, inventor, engineer and founder of FIRST, an organisation that uses sport as the model to promote and encourage learning in science and technology amongst kids. Dean, anybody who reads um, your bio will be absolutely blown away with what an interesting um, life you've had. Um, Before we start talking about first, I'd like to just understand a bit more about you and uh, I think you refer to as as your day job. I mean, where where did things all start for you when you started to recognize the power of creativity and invention and and technology as a a solution for for challenges in, in the world? Well, I started my first company actually when I was a kid, really a kid. Uh, By the time I was in junior high school, I was designing circuits for friends in the early days of, quote, light organs. And by the time I got into high school, I was designing drug delivery systems for my older brother, who at the time was going through medical school, getting both his MD degree and a PhD in pharmacology, where he was developing drugs for treating babies, particularly neonates with cancer. And he needed very precise ways to deliver drugs. And that equipment isn't made in part because uh, it's a small market. Fortunately, not too many babies are born with cancer. But secondly, back in those days, uh, there wasn't the availability of microprocessors and, and efficient ways to, to make small battery-operated stuff that could sit in isolates. But after making that stuff for him, and he would very proudly show all of his professors as he went up and back between some very prestigious institutions where he was working, like Harvard Medical School and Yale Medical School, where he ended up as a professor, uh, all of these docs would end up telling my brother that they needed a slight modification on this technology for a problem they were having with the patients uh, that had the issues they were addressing. And so I started making all sorts of different uh, systems uh, for all these different clinical situations. And um, over the next few years, I ended up growing a company uh, that started making everything from insulin pumps for people with diabetes to drug delivery systems uh, uh, for uh, outpatients uh, getting chemotherapy to making uh, dialysis machines to get people home. Uh, I started making other kinds of medical products, stents. We started making a device called an iBot, uh, which is uh, back nearly 20 years ago was a fly-by-wire, essentially a robotic device that stood up and balanced and could carry a disabled person up and down a flight of stairs. It could keep a disabled person on on two little wheels standing as tall as they would uh, if they could stand. And it gave them more than just mobility. It gave them back dignity. And from that device, we made a non-medical device, which the world knows as the Segway. And then we started making water purification systems. That's the number one killer of kids around the world. And we started using those systems to uh, make home hemodialysis a possibility. Um, and along the way, probably 30 years ago, um, I realized that 
so many kids in particular uh, never see how exciting technology can be, how powerful it can be as a tool, how enabling it can be to give somebody career options in a world that's getting more and more uh, capable with technology, but more dependent on people that understand technology. So I started first uh, to create more innovators. And uh, I hope that's what we're going to talk about. So that was, how long ago was, was that, Dean? Was it like 30 years ago? Yep, I started first about 30 years ago. And so um, from humble beginnings, it's grown into something fairly significant, hasn't it? Well, I, I built it on the sports model and 23 or 24 companies were asked to adopt 23 or 24, I forget the number now, uh, local schools in their environment uh, from around the country and using as much as I could the, exactly the sports model. I said to all these uh, big companies, hey, you know, kids love sports because it's an after-school activity that's aspirational. It's not forced on them in a curriculum. Um, they don't get quizzes and tests and final exams. They participate and they get letters and trophies and they bring the mascots and the school bands and the cheerleaders and the community. And that same person, typically the, the coach of their team after school, that's this nurturing, supporting person, uh, was the teacher in the classroom that had to give them red marks for spelling and grammar and mathematical errors, had to give them grading. And, and I, I just, I was astounded. And my, the epiphany to me, more than 30 years ago, when this country, serious people back then, already knew that we're not producing enough scientists and engineers. Industry knew it, the government knew it, parents knew it, teachers knew it. And they also knew particularly girls, for some reason, by the time they're certainly in middle school and high school, have been literally not only not attracted to, but by our culture, they've been pushed away from the world of science and technology and engineering. Girls that were good at math and science would actually hide that fact, thinking in our culture, it makes them less attractive. Uh, it, 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 it stunned me. But I realized, hey, there's a model that works to get kids passionate about something. The most powerful model in our culture is the model of sports. It's, you know, baseball isn't the national pastime as it used to be called. It's an obsession, as is the Super Bowl, as the Final Four. But as other things uh, dwindled in comparison, the world of sports and, and the role models from sports and the, and the heroes from the world of sports became a, a hugely dominant piece of our culture. So I just said, hey, that model works. Let's, let's create a sport that in every way is like every other sport. It's exciting. It's not like you have to take quizzes. It's not like the answer's in the back of the book and we already know. No, it's, it's gonna be double elimination tournaments and until that last sound of that last buzzer, nobody's gonna know who won. It's gonna be exciting, it'll be engaging. And I realized if I could, if I could get all the trappings of other sports and package them up in a way that all kids could feel like they could participate, I wanted to make a sport um, that would have only one difference. Uh, same level of excitement, same level of commitment, same intensity of the season, except we'd have the only sport where every kid on every team could turn pro. There aren't a million open positions right now in the NBA or the NFL or Major League Baseball, but there are millions of 
of open positions, not just for jobs, but for exciting careers in the world of tech. But the average kid that gets to 18 or 19 years old leaves high school without having developed a background and understanding and appreciation for tech is about as likely to be prepared for those jobs as a kid that gets to 18 or 19 have never been on a little league team or on any other intramural or varsity team saying, I wanna go play baseball or football or basketball. It's a little late to start your career in sports at 18 or 19. Well, it's becoming a little late in your career, in your lifetime to start thinking about the world of tech if you haven't gotten passionate about it as a young kid. So I went to a bunch of companies, about 25, as I said, 23, 25, and said, look, you need these kids more than they need you for your future. I'm going to make a sport, but in order to have it attractive to these kids, I needed to be like every other sport in our culture, which is I needed to have superstars. Kids in America will play football or basketball. They're not going to play cricket because there are no superstars of cricket. They're not public. They're not visible. There aren't major league teams of cricket. And we're not going to blame the Department of Education for a critical cricket shortage. If we wanted kids to play cricket, the business world would make professional cricket leagues. So I got to get superstars from the world of tech, like we have superstars in football and basketball. I got to have these people be in front of these kids, showing them just how proud they are of doing what they do, just like the superstars of other sports. They've got to be role models that can show them the power of, of what extraordinary people in tech can do. And then that's all they got to do. Let the teachers teach. Let the coaches coach. We're not going to ask industry to take over the world of education. We just want industry to create the passion among the kids. The same way we expect the NBA and the NFL to create a passion among kids to start playing football and baseball and Little League in, in their hometowns. And I got 20, as I said, 20 some odd high tech companies from the aerospace industry, from the automotive industry, from the semiconductor industry, you name it. And by the end of our first season, which was like every other sporting season, a short in 10, six or eight weeks, um, all the teams got together in a high school gym in Manchester, New Hampshire, and we had our tournament. And everybody loved it. And the corporate sponsors loved it. And I said, all right, guys, we need a lot more of these teams than 25 schools. Bring your friends. I'll give you a kit twice as big next year. I think I gave them 10 pounds of junk and a little 12-foot by 12-foot field that first year. By the next year, the field was twice as big. We had twice as many teams. Uh, everybody loved that. By the next year, we went to like 50 teams. By the next year, 100 teams. And by the end of about 10 years, we were doing regional events every weekend in March because I had all the big Fortune 500 giants participating, but they came back and said, Dean, if you really want to scale this like sports, you can do a Super Bowl, you can do a World Series, but unless every local town can have their own Little League, you're not going to get kids all over this country to start playing these sports just because you inspired them with, with the Super Bowl or the World Series, unless they can participate locally through their schools and their community. So the big guys that had been with me for the first few years that knew it was working said, we'll host events around the country so that mid-sized and smaller companies can start adopting teams. Because unlike these big guys that had been with me, the average company uh, sponsor can't take kids and parents and teachers and put them on airplanes and fly them to Manchester, New Hampshire for a weekend event or by the 10th year, fly them to uh, uh, Disneyland where we were doing it at Epcot. 
And, and lo and behold, we started doing regional events. And by our 15th year, I think we had at least half a dozen uh, regionals, every city, uh, every weekend in the country. And I'm happy to tell you last year, we had something like 170 cities throughout March, March Madness doing regional events. We have something like 80,000 schools involved in all levels of our competition from junior first Lego league to first Lego league, that's like Little League, to first tech challenge, to first robotics. And we have something like 200 universities that sponsor teams. And last year we handed out $80 million in scholarships to kids on first robotics teams. And we have 200,000 volunteer engineers and technical mentors and 3,700 corporate sponsors. I mean, this thing is unbelievable. unbelievable. My biggest frustration is that while it's gotten very deep in every community it's in, we still grow the way we always grew from grassroots. My biggest frustration is the best kept secret in the world. Every kid in this country, whether they play it or not, they know about basketball, they know about football, they know about uh, all sorts of other sports. There's only two kinds of kids and parents and teachers and companies in this country when it comes to first, the ones that love it and the ones that have never heard of it. Right. And the one part of the world of sports that I haven't been able to capture is how do they get media attention? How do they get, you know, the ESPNs and the nightly news? And how do they, how do they get access to all the kids to become the next generation of participants and the next generation of fans? Uh, I don't know how to do that. But after 30 years, uh, we keep going, we keep growing, we have phenomenal success in the communities we're in, but I wish I could figure out what's the magic to really go absolutely full scale to become as much part of popular culture and popular sports as all the other sports. Okay, so with that in mind, may, maybe for the benefit of people that are listening to this podcast or reading about first for the first, first time, just explain what does what a first robotics team actually do? What is the what's what are they building and what do they do with what they've built once it's built? So every year we change the kit of parts and we change the game a little. We still use this pretty much the same size playing field. It's a little bit small. It's maybe half the size of a basketball court. But the reason that we change the rules of our game every year is we don't want the returning teams to have optimized the game because we are growing so fast that every year if 20 or 30 or 40% of the teams and the kids on the teams have never played, they'd be at too much of a disadvantage against the, you know, the rookies would be at too much of a disadvantage against all the veterans. So every year by tradition, now it's come down to the first week in January, we quote, unveil the field. And typically they're themed and the field might be uh, representing the ocean, a big blue field. And we dump onto it, uh, let's say bright orange soccer balls and they represent the pollution. And we typically take the teams at each event and put them into what we call alliances. So we'll take three of the teams and make them the red teams and three of the teams and make them the blue teams for round one. And they each, uh, the, the, the round starts, and in two minutes, the three red robots uh, have to compete to collect more of the balls than the blue ones can, and they get extra points if they can climb up and put them in recycling bins or shoot them up very high into other kinds of bins. But we create a playing field 
that allows the teams, they all get a, a, a identical kit of parts, the motors, the controllers, the computers. They get an identical kit of parts. They can add a few extra things they can get at a local uh, hardware store. Uh, and they have to build a robot. It's, you know, they're constrained in terms of the length, width, and height. Uh, they're constrained in, a, in weight. To, this year is a little over 100 pounds. They have six or eight weeks to work to build a robot to accomplish the goal, let's say, as I said, of last year's game, collecting all these balls. Um, and at the end of their build season, they go to regional events every weekend in March. They bring their robot, uh, whether it's to a college, a field house, or a, or a civic center, or in some states, it may be a big high school, a gymnasium, and maybe 30, 40, 50 teams will get together. They will be put into these random groups of three. They'll play probably eight or nine rounds. In a, in a round robin process, by the time they get to the championship, typically a, 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 a season ends with a three day event, maybe Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And by the, let's say, the time that they've all had their seating rounds, uh, the final day, the final, let's say, afternoon, the number one seed gets to pick a partner that they stay with, this number two seed similarly. And they, so each group, let's say, for the quarterfinals, the semifinals, and the finals, they've now locked down so the fans can really get to understand them. And they have these very competitive final rounds uh, at a regional. And then winners from the regional events go on to a championship uh, event, which as I will tell you last year, were so big that uh, we ended up having to make our championship events take two weekends in two cities, Houston and, uh, and Detroit, where we had probably 50,000 people show up in each of those cities with seven or 800 teams in each uh, city to run uh, the championship. And, you know, we've grown phenomenally. And so we keep every year making the kits more capable. We have very sophisticated hardware, software systems. They get camera systems in there so that their robots can do uh, vision, they can do artificial intelligence, they can do machine learning, they can do, uh, you know, stuff that 20 years ago would have been pushing uh, the military to be able to do some of the stuff we expect these uh, kids to have these robots do in a six-week build season. But we have some of the best technical companies in the country uh, that are supporting us with volunteers and mentors and equipment uh, the schools love it because it's just a way to energize all the kids and do it after school where they can do it a lot more than, you know, maybe that one one hour once a week, like they might get a, a physics or a chemistry or biology lab during the build season. It's like other sports. They can spend three or four hours every day after school, and then they'll work all weekend in, in frenetic fashion in the last week or two before they got to go compete. And uh, as I said, it, it, it has the same intensity as any other sport. And again, another big advantage of our sport is, you know, for some of these other sports, only the kids that are going to be, you know, close to seven feet tall have a real shot at basketball. Uh, only the uh, kids that are well over 200 pounds can compete in football. Uh, but we have the only sport where boys, girls, tall, short, uh, everybody has a shot at competing. and it's the only sport where everybody's in the unlimited class thinking, uh, you know, 
it's just it's just a great sport. It's all encompassing, uh, and it needs to be in every school in the country. So what I love about it, Dean, was um, I mean I'll be honest with you. Before I first spoke to uh, your team about setting up this interview, I, I had never heard of of um, what you're doing, and that's you know that's a poor reflection on me because I should know about it. But given how the scale of what you're doing, but what I what I love about about your your model is that you're using sport and the kids passion for sports and competition and all that stuff that you've spoken about but you're using it to make the world a better place by one providing um getting more kids into this pathway of of stem which is fantastic um but i would imagine that there there's a, there are also many great examples of kids that have come into the world of stem through uh, first that have gone on to develop some of the really meaningful innovations in the world. I mean, are there any examples oh. that come to mind of, you know, if it hadn't been for first, this kid wouldn't have become an engineer and we wouldn't have solved this problem. Well, first of all, if there's not an example, it would be trite to try to, but yep. it would be like saying, I wonder if any of the players in the NBA, or I wonder if any of the players in the NFL uh, played high school football or basketball or college football or basketball. Come on, those are really farm teams for these professionals. Yep. In the same way, I don't think in the last 10 years, I've hired too many people among the 800 that now are at my day job companies that we didn't need to first. And I think the reason we have 3,700 corporate sponsors is because these tech companies have figured out that they better, they yep. better A, not only energize more kids to, to become engineers, but they better attract themselves, attach themselves to these kids early because these kids are going to go off. They'll go off to great engineering schools that are giving them scholarships because they found them in first. But once these kids have these, you know, these credentials, the, the world is their oyster. And if these companies that are competing for the best talent didn't, didn't get to know these kids and support these kids through high school, if they weren't out there scouting for these kids when they were their mentors, the same way the universities are, they'd have no chance of bringing them back to their community and their companies. So that's why we have a lot of corporate sponsors. But, you know, you said something, which is you feel badly that you didn't know much about us till this call and that you said it was your fault. That's not true. As I said to you, my biggest frustration is I think we, we did a very good job of capturing the things that make first sports so attractive to kids we made it aspirational we made teamwork you name it we made it work and we've captured their hearts and minds the model of sports was properly uh, uh, our you know our, our our template but since my day job i design artificial organs i design medical i i don't have any sales marketing background or skills I don't think it's your fault. I think, and it's frustrated <laughs> me now for years, we have never figured out how to get ourselves in front of the world of media, of, right. of the kinds of organizations that, that put a loud megaphone or a bright spotlight onto the world of sports. Mm. You know, new sports come and instantly kids see them everywhere. I, do, I, I am desperately trying to figure out what I have to do, what do I have to understand about the world of media so that people like yourself will say, yeah, now that we've seen it, now that we've seen how much fun it is, how exciting it is, how engaged the kids are and the parents and the teachers, it is like every other sport. This is not a 
a science fair, thinly veiled, called a sport, but it's as dull and boring and esoteric and academic as science. No, it's a real sport in every way. I don't know how to break into that community so that they can let the world know about what's still the best kept secret we have. Well, I'm hopefully after listening to this podcast, you'll have you'll be inundated with people with ideas. Um, I'm sure you will. I, I wonder if I wonder if there's some insights that can be drawn from from esports. I mean, that's been uh, you know a, a movement that's just exploded over the last five years. Um, yeah, it's, it's a really yeah. interesting challenge. It's a really interesting challenge. So, so as you. Dean, first of all, congratulations for what you've built. I mean, it's the, the difference that you're making in the world. I know you're frustrated because not everybody knows about it, but um, the kids know about it because they're competing in it. And you've got millions of kids that are, yep. are benefiting from this and society's benefiting from it. So, you know, may, maybe the measure of success is not how many people are tuning in to watch it, but the difference you're making in the world. Um, and so I think there's lots, well, of, I agree lots of credit for that. I agree. I, I agree that the kids that are on our teams are making a huge difference in the world and first is making a huge difference in their lives, but that only makes me more frustrated because we could be making a much bigger difference in the lives of tens of millions more kids just in this country. And we could, with that army of kids with the technical expertise they develop, we could be solving the world's technical problems more quickly. And whether you're worried about global warming or food or cybersecurity or healthcare or, we, we need more smart people focused on applying better technologies more quickly than ever. And the best way to do that is to get to kids when they're still young and have a lot of energy and, and can be inspired and are willing to take reasonable risks. And, and, and if we can just get the passion at an early age into a much larger army of kids, the world will be a better place. And since we know every kid that gets involved with FIRST, loves it. To me, our issue isn't making FIRST better, it's making it more available. And I'm hoping you and media people around the country that have expertise uh, will help us do that. Well, that's a, that's a great point, a great spot to end. Um, Dean, thank you so much for your time today. I know you're a busy guy, uh, lots going on in your, in your world. So we appreciate you taking time out to talk to us. And um, we will do our bit to make sure that more people hear and learn about first to first. Well, thank you very much. Very, very much. We hope that you've enjoyed listening to this edition of Legacy Sport Live, the companion podcast series to our new book, Legacy Sport, how to win at the business of sport in the age of social good. Please visit our website at www.legacysport.org to order your copy of the book and join our growing community of sports business professionals committed to doing good while doing well through sport.